And I remember seeing my dad cry. I wasn't sure what was really going on. And I shut my eyes and remember thinking, oh, my gosh, nobody told my dad what happened. You know, like he's got no clue. He's got no clue. I just burnt down his house, man. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. Instead of lying in bed like a loser, what if I launched myself out of bed like a rocket? Just dream it. Say it out loud with your words, and then unicorns arrive from nowhere, (laughs) and they just make everything easy. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord. On the show today, we have John O'Leary as he shares his story of a survival from a fire that left him with burns over 100% of his body, what legendary baseball broadcaster Jack Buck did for him, and what it was like to return to the Cardinals' Bush Stadium. John O'Leary is a remarkable person. Just what he's overcome, and that story is amazing in itself, but what he has done to not just change himself, but the lives of people around him, how he always highlights others is just an amazing thing. This interview, um, which which he does, we joke around a bit, he hosts a podcast, he's much better than I am, but he um, just does so much to bring out that story, and I can guarantee that you'll be moved, you'll be inspired. So I asked John, could you tell us about your story how it started that one morning with you as a child and how your life changed. So I'm a Midwestern guy, and, and I grew up in a wonderful neighborhood, but I'd, I saw little boys older than I playing with fire and gasoline, and I figured if these little boys can do that and get away with it, so can I. And on a Saturday morning in 1987, uh, January 17th, my father's at work, my mother's out with a couple siblings, I walked into their garage, I bent over a can of gasoline, tried to pour a tiny bit on top, Ryan, and what of course happened was this massive, mighty, transformative explosion that split the five-gallon can of gasoline in two. It picked me up, it launched me 20 feet against the far side of the garage, set the garage on fire, set my world on fire, and, and changed everything. You know, at one moment I was a perfectly happy and healthy and and a candidly, extraordinarily good-looking nine-year-old <laughs> little boy, and then it all changed. And I think that that's actually one of the stories that connects with folks around the world is that we all have endured that unexpected change. And then what, right? Then then what do you do with it? Yeah. And and what what was the immediate aftermath? Obviously, what goes through your mind, or what what happened right. at that time? Well, there's there's a lot there in that question. But the very first thing is going back to training. What what were we all taught to do if we're, if we're ever on fire? What are you supposed to do, Brian? Uh, stop, drop, and roll. Yes, right. Correct. But what do you actually do when you're on fire? <laughs> I'm sure you just run. Run, man! You panic! And there's, we, we could rift on that for your entire podcast because the reality is this. We train up there, right up in your head. That's where almost all training takes place. But you lead and you serve, and I think you sell and you buy and you inspire, and ultimately you live from a much more sacred source. We need training. We need our heads. We need our minds. And yet if it's not connected down to our hearts, I think it's hollow. But part of my role as a speaker and as a leader is to connect the two so that they become one, like undivided. But that day for me, I, I panicked as a nine-year-old. I, I ran for my life. It, the, the result of this is I ended up with burns on 100% of my body, and 87% of those were third degree. I'm laying in a hospital bed that morning in the emergency room. I hear my father's voice down the hall. He's, he's kind of shouting at some nurse, where is my boy, John. You know, I hear the, the roar of the lion coming toward me, and my thought as a nine-year-old was, oh my gosh, 
the, the old man has come to finish me off. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's over. He's going to be furious. And this nurse brings my dad back into the room. She probably should have called security, but she brings him back into the room. He pulls back the curtain, this old, angry guy, he's probably 41 years old or so. He walks in, points down, and then he says to me, John, look at me when I'm talking to you. So I look up at my dad. You know, he's a business owner and a former veteran. So I look up at my dad, and then he says, I have never been so proud of anybody in my entire life and my little buddy. And then he goes, you look at me when I'm talking to you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I remember seeing my dad cry. I wasn't sure what was really going on. And I shut my eyes and remember thinking, oh, my gosh, nobody told my dad what happened. You know, like he's got no clue. He's got no clue. I just burnt down his house, man. And then for me, Brian, I remember thinking, I wonder if I can get away with this. You know, maybe I can pull this thing off. But for the parents listening or for the aunties and uncles or anybody who's ever loved something or someone more than themselves listening, you realize, yeah, dad knew what happened, but he also realized what mattered. And tragedy and difficulty has a wonderful ability to wake us up to what actually matters at work and in life. And, and that day, my dad was fully awake and he's never looked back. And what, I know your mom, too. I, I love the story of, of what she did and, and how she challenged you that day in a, in a really tough circumstance. It's, so my mom and dad, we're, we're having this call right now. Last night, we celebrated their 50th anniversary. Oh, wow. My, Congratulations. Uh, indeed, no doubt, man. And like for, my dad has had Parkinson's disease for 28 years. My mother's been through all kinds of storms. Some everybody knows about, many that no one will ever find out about. But she just keeps weathering these storms. Well, how? She's tough. She's just an awesome, loving, bold woman. She's uh, a role model and one of my heroes. I came into that hospital on January 17th. My father was the first one into the room, but right behind my dad was my mom. Totally ill-equipped and unprepared for what she's about to see. A little boy that she'd left earlier that morning, now laying in this hospital bed dying. She walks over to me. She takes my right hand in hers. She pats my bald head. And I get emotional sharing this because I, I usually don't share this at live events. But she pats my bald head and then she says, baby, I love you. I love you so much. And I remember looking up and saying, mom, knock it off with the love. You know, like enough. Dad got that covered. Am I going to die? And when I asked the question, my assumption was my mother would pat me on the back or the head and say, baby, you are fine. We will get you out of here today, and we're going to swing through steak and shake on the way home. You're going to be fine, though. That, that's what I thought I wanted. But instead, Brian, what she gave, which I think is much more important, was truth, which requires audacity and boldness and I think a great amount of love. She looked back at me and she said, baby, do you want to die? because that's your choice. It's not mine. And I remember looking up and thinking, what, what is she talking about? But I said, no, mom, I don't want to die. I want to live. And her response was good. Then baby, take the hand of God. You walk the journey with him, but you fight. You fight like you have never fought before. Your father and I will be with you every step along the way, but you've got to want, want this thing. You've got to fight for this thing. You've got to want to own it, John. And uh, Brian, I think what she was teaching me that day was uh, it's not enough for someone to come in with, with platitudes or false promises or a little bit of vague hope. 
we need to take accountability in our struggles, but also in our goals toward our desires and our dreams and our work and our relationships and our lives. And it's something I learned as a nine-year-old. And I think it's something we all need to be reminded of from time to time in our journeys going forward. You got to fight for it if you really want it. How did you apply that as a nine-year-old? And I, you apply it every day. I'm, I'm 41 and applying it still today in my walk, not only professionally, but personally. Like, relationships are hard. I've been married myself 15 years. We are now parenting together four babies. My dad has Parkinson's disease. I'm guiding him forward. I'm, I'm trying to love my mom as effectively as I can. I'm, I'm growing a speaking business and a podcast business, writing books. Like, it's, it, it can be hard. But it's, you ultimately remember in life, it's about something bigger than you. Viktor Frankl wrote, when you know your why, you can endure anyhow. When you know your why, when you realize what actually is going on and your role in the solution here, you, you can endure anyhow. And so how I applied it was whether it was physical therapy or OT, occupational therapy, blood transfusions, bandage changes, whatever it may have been as a child, to fight through it, to, to believe that it's not going to be someone else coming in to fix me. They will support, they will help, they will guide, they will encourage. But at the end of the day, we, we too must own it. We've, we've got to own our part in the solution. You've talked a lot about the people who've been such a huge support to you. Who are some of those people after your parents that came in and, and, and made an impact on your life? I, I wrote a, a book and uh, ran out of pages talking about these folks and what I learned from them and what I think they're teaching each of us in our lives on how to be better leaders and how to be better servants, how to be better guides at work and beyond. One of my favorite examples, and really there are many to pull from, but one of my favorite came into my life just one day after I got burned. So I got burned on a Saturday. I'm laying in the hospital bed on Sunday. I'm stretched out. I can't see. My eyes are swollen shut. I can't move. I'm tied down to a hospital bed and I can't talk because my lungs were burned. So I'm, I'm completely unable to do anything except dream and hope and feel and hear. And as a little boy who grew up in the Midwest in the mid eighties, the one thing maybe more than anything else that I loved to listen to was baseball. And my team was the St. Louis Cardinals. The voice of the St. Louis Cardinals back then was a guy named Jack Buck. Jack Buck uh, is a Hall of Fame announcer, a Hall of Fame human being, the father of a guy named Joe Buck, who uh, himself is a phenomenal guy and announcer. I'd never met Jack Buck before. He is a celebrity. John O'Leary and his family are not. We are an ordinary family. I'm laying in this hospital bed by myself in utter darkness, dying. My door opens up. Footsteps walk in, a chair comes across the floor, and then I hear the voice of Jack Buck in my room with me, gently touching my head, and he's saying to me, kid, kid, wake up, wake up, you are going to live, you are going to survive, and when you get out of here, we are going to celebrate, we'll call it John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. And then loud and clear, he says to me, kid, are you listening? And then we, I don't respond, so he says, good, keep fighting. And, you know, Brian, that, that's a conversation I had 31 years ago, and it's one I remember perfectly three-plus decades later. I, I think as much as anything a doctor or a nurse or a parent or anybody else may have done or said for me back then – that one visit by Jack Buck did more than anything else to shape the arc of my life. I, I think too frequently in life we forget the power of one. Like the, the ability we have 
to guide and encourage someone else to take the next step forward in their journey. And, and that day he came in and proved it. Changed my world, was told by a nurse on the way out that there was no chance the little boy was going to survive. Not like it's not looking good, Jack. The nurse said to him very clearly, there is no chance. And that night he goes home, he asks his favorite question, which is, what more can I do? And we could spend all day talking about this question and what it means for us doing life better afterwards each day. What more can I do? But the following day, Jack Buck comes back to this hospital into a little boy's life that he had never met before the day before, comes back and says, kid, wake up. I'm back. I'm back. You are going to live. You are going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary Day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. See us soon. And Brian, in short, that man came into my life almost every day for the next five months of hospitalization. He, he utterly changed my life, followed through on John O'Leary Day at the ballpark, taught me how to lead and dream and live and write and achieve and move forward in my own journey. Where do you think he got that idea? Like, that's incredible by him to do that and to make that impact. Did you ever ask him, like, why did you do it or, or who inspired you to do that? So it's, you'd almost have to be a St. Louis person to really understand the depth of this story. But Jack Book was the kind of guy that uh, if you happen to be seated next to him at a little diner, he would leave without saying anything. But as you reach for your bill, you would realize someone had just paid for it, and he would never take ownership of it. He was the kind of guy who um, <clears throat> would accidentally forget to uh, get any change back from his $100 bill that he gave to the person at lunch. He would just give massive tips. And this is before athletes and uh, announcers were really, truly wealthy. I mean, he, he did well, but not, not exorbitantly so. He just was stunningly generous with what he had. I, he grew up in the Depression. He grew up poor. He served in the war. And he, he, he realized, I think, what actually mattered and the ability each of us have to first be grateful for what we have, but then to serve those around us in a way that elevates them in their own walk. He had been told the day I was burned randomly at a charity auction that a little guy named John O'Leary was burned in St. Louis. Keep him in your thoughts and prayers. That was all that he was told that night. And the following day, there's only really one big burn center in St. Louis. Jack Buck, not knowing this kid from anybody else, comes into his Lincoln Town car early on a Sunday morning and goes to the burn center, takes the elevator up, and visits a little boy that he'd never heard of, never met, and would probably never meet again. And then he was so deeply moved by that exchange that he came back. And the wild thing about coming back is he never told his wife what he was doing. He never told Joe, his son, never told a soul. There's so much more depth to the story. But in short, he saw at John O'Leary Day at the ballpark, it's August 26, 1987, that the little boy could not get out of a wheelchair, could hold nothing. So the following day, he sent me a baseball from one Cardinal player. Below that baseball was a note that said, kid, if you want a second baseball, all you have to do is send a thank you letter to the guy who signed the first. You know, this man had been with me the night before. He knew I could not write. And he knew the power of one, the power of motivation, the power to get someone to do the next best thing in their life, even if they don't think they want to do it, or even if they think they can't do it. And in doing this for me that day, he taught a little boy, John O'Leary, to write. I wrote a note to Ozzie Smith, mailed it off, and two days later, Brian, I got a second baseball from Jack with a second note that read, kid, if you want a third baseball. 
Then he said, kid, if you want a fourth baseball, kid, if you want a fifth. 1987, Jack sent to a little nobody. That's not false humility. This is just truth. A little nobody named John O'Leary, 6D baseballs, teaching this little nobody named John how to write, how to live, how to set goals and to achieve them and to set another one and to achieve it and to move forward. He quietly walked with me my entire life. When I graduated university, he, he came one final time. He's got stage four lung cancer. He is dying, and he is robustly, vibrantly alive. When he comes that night with a package and a note, the note read, kid, this means a lot to me. I hope it means a lot to you, too. I opened up the package, and Brian inside was the baseball that he received when he went into the Hall of Fame. So I read the rest of the note, and it says, kid, there is only one like this in the entire world. Don't drop it. And he hands it to me. And then he leaves the party early. He never told Joe, a Hall of Fame announcer himself, that he did this. He never told Carol. He never told the media. Never told us all. He just gave and served and showed up because he could. And I, I think part of the beauty of the Jack Buck story is that no one knew it. I mean, no one knew it. And I think uh, that that is in part our calling in life, to just have that open heart to give and to encourage at work, in the community, at home, not because we're expecting something. Maybe if we do this, our employees will do something differently. No, we give because we can. And then in doing that, people act differently. People show up differently. People work differently. People speak differently. And then life's beginning to change in our own reflection in life, but also around us. So I am a huge Reds fan. And uh, it almost, your story almost makes me like the Cardinals slightly. Uh, there's room rival on the bandwagon, brother. There is room on the bandwagon. <laughs> but uh, what was it like as a speaker being able to go and talk wow. to your childhood team? You've done your homework, man. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I've been able to speak to several sports franchises, but uh, clearly to speak to your home team town in spring training first, and then eventually they brought me back up to speak during the regular season on the 30th anniversary of John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. Like, that's craziness. It was it, It's shocking to share a story, and I don't ever take for granted that the story is going to work, if you know what I mean, kind of like working quotes, like, will this connect? I always... Uh, there's always a, a part of me that wonders, gosh, will it work for this group and that group and in this country? And with a language barrier, will it work? And to know that it works and that it moves and that it elevates people's mindsets afterwards long term, that, that is powerful. To then afterwards hug 40 wealthy, athletic, handsome, major league ball players to sign their books, to shake their hands, to hear their stories. That's incredibly moving for me. But for me, I think the best part, Brian, was after all that went down, one of the kids in the clubhouse said, hey, O'Leary, would you want to throw out the first pitch today? <laughs> you know, like, dude, I don't have fingers, man. Like, this is not going to go down smooth. But uh, my response to podcasting Girl Scouts and the St. Louis Cardinals is always, yes, yes, I'll, I'll do it, man. So I take this little ball before the game starts, walk toward the mound. About halfway out, there's a tug on my jersey. I turn around, look down. It's one of my kids named Patrick. And Patrick says to me, Dad, don't embarrass us. <laughs> like, oh, great, dude. Like, that, that's totally what I need right now with the stadium packed with people. Like, your, your encouragement. So I, uh, I take that encouragement to the mound throw this pitch, it's called a strike, walk back toward the player, shake his hand, take the ball, he signs it, 
you know, and, and then the best part, the reason I, I, I'm smiling during this whole story is afterwards, I walked up to my wife, who is remarkable, hugged her and thanked her, my four babies, loved on them, then my incredible mom, who we could spend another entire podcast on, and then I walked over to my dad, who has been stationary in a wheelchair for 11 years. He's been unemployed for 13. He's been nonverbal for two. And I hugged him. And I told my dad I loved him, that he's my hero. And when I grow up, I hope I become like him. And I'm, I'm an easy <laughs> cry man. So I, I, I hugged him. I cried with him. And then I stood back up, Brian. And I got to push my dad around the stadium, which the irony may be lost on you, but hopefully not your listeners. Because 30 years to the day before this picture was taken, there was a little boy named John O'Leary with really no chance at life, stationary in a wheelchair, unable to do much of anything, with a big goofy grin on his face. And now 30 years have passed. I've climbed out of that wheelchair. I've lived a remarkably fortunate life. My dad has stumbled into it. And now I have the honor of a lifetime of pushing my dad around the stadium, celebrating John O'Leary Day at the ballpark, part two. And so I, like, I, I think it's such a cool way to, in some regards, wrap up our time together because I don't know where your listeners or their organizations are on that life spectrum. But I am utterly convinced that the best days are in front of us, individually and collectively. I, I think you've got to be bold. You've got to have a little bit of audacity. You've got to have a dream bigger than the life you're currently staring at. But I, I think what we need right now is for people to move forward, to believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today, and then to be repeatedly amazed how accurate they were in that, that expectation. When I speak, I, I, I not only try to share like inspiration, and when I write, what I try to share is not only inspiration, and certainly it's not about, wow, look what John did, maybe I can too. What I always try to do is equip people to make themselves the star of the show, and then to give them a clear pathway which they can follow. And, and for me, in most uh, events, I provide them three questions to ask themselves. But then before I share the three they ought to be asking, I share the three most commonly asked, and I call them the victim's questions. But when you are struggling in work, in relationships, in life, with delays, with traffic, when the Cincinnati Reds are losing for the 11th year in a row, <laughs> when you are a victim to circumstances, Brian Lord, <laughs> there are three questions we ask. Number one is, why me? We're like, oh, why me? The second question is, who cares? Which is the great question of indifference, and indifference always leads to death of relationships, of organizations, of franchises, of, of life. And then the third and final nail in the coffin is what more can I do? And we kind of like look down at the grounds when we ask that one. And then what I would encourage our listeners in the podcast and our listeners live and audiences to do instead is to ask three completely different questions, and I'll have them write it down, and I'll encourage your listeners to do it right now. People, open up your pen lids. Here we go. Why me? Why me? Why am I so lucky? Why am I so blessed? Why do I have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel and the minds to think and create and collaborate? Why do we get to live where we live at the freest, wealthiest period in the history of human civilization? Like, we've got a lot going for us. It's not perfect, but it's a powerful, strong foundation from which we can leap. Why me? Secondly, who cares if it's hard? if there are some challenges, if we individually and collectively are asked to do more and more and more with less and less and less. Who cares, please? This is a question around mission and meaning, like values in life. It's a question around why you choose to thrive each day that you have. So who cares if it's hard? We and the work we do is worthy. And then third and finally, and if you're really listening at home, you probably know what's coming, but it's what more can I do? 
What more can I do to ensure that tomorrow is even better than today? And I believe, yeah, these three questions, they look a lot like the first three. They're identical, in fact. But depending on how we ask the questions will influence and inform what we see, how we feel, what we think, the words we speak, the actions we take, and the lives ultimately we live. And so I, I, I sincerely encourage all of your listeners just to ask those questions boldly all day. Why me in the morning? What a great way to start your day, not with a list of all you don't have or things you have to get done, but for 60 seconds pausing to make inventory of what you have already. Then who cares? And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, what more can I do to make tomorrow better than today? Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking Podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of d Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Young, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast?